Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Colby Cast, your place for community and conversation about pop culture and storytelling. On this episode, Caleb and Luke are tackling the second half of the Barbenheimer uh, worldwide event. So on this episode, we will be talking about Oppenheimer. Um, without further ado, let's uh, say hello this time to Luke. Hello, Luke. Hi. Hello, Caleb. Hi. Or so, hello. Or hello. So last episode, we spoke about Barbie, which was on Luke's most anticipated list of the uh, movie of the year list. And this time, we'll be talking about Oppenheimer, which just happened to be on Caleb's uh, most anticipated movies of the year list. So Barbie exceeded Luke's expectations. Caleb, let's start with you. We're talking about Oppenheimer. How did you like the movie and what did it do for you? Did it meet your expectations, exceed them, fall below them? Hit me. I don't know if there's something wrong with me psychologically or not. But I think I can say with absolute confidence that I was one of the only people in the entire universe, not just the world, not just America, the universe, who walked out of the theater with a smile on their face. (laughs) (laughs) And no, it wasn't because I'm some sicko who likes war or anything like that. I just thoroughly enjoy a beautifully told story, and that's exactly what... Um, Christopher Nolan did with with Oppenheimer. I didn't have any th- any issues with anything. I think some things were extremist for extreme reasons, but I think it was justified. And I think it's my favorite movie I have ever watched with no intention of ever watching it again. Oh, interesting, interesting. Why wouldn't you want to see it again? Just out of curiosity. Because there's no need to. I don't need to live the anticipation again because I'm not going to be anticipating everything I've already seen. Mm-hmm. Story is so well told that it's it's history. Of course, it's dramatized for movie watching purposes. Yeah. But if I need to re- refresh myself, I can just open a history book or talk to one of you two history buffs. Um <laughs> It was just so, so, so well done that I don't, I don't find enjoyment of rewatching something over and over and over. I think I could live the rest of my life understanding that I enjoyed it the first time and having the feeling that I had enjoying that movie as much as I did and putting it in a bottle and putting it in a safety deposit box, revisiting that feeling if I need to. But I just loved it so much that I don't think rewatching it is going to change any of those feelings good or bad you know i get it yeah i get it it's like um it's like a walk-off home run right exactly game over the other thing is it was there's no doubt about it it was heavy it was very heavy and the last portion without jumping to any spoilers yet um it opened my eyes to what is going on in our, our lives today and mm. what things are possibilities in our lives today. And I don't think I need that constantly ringing in my brain and being reminded at the conclusion of, um, what is it, an eighth of a day <laughs> because that's how long the movie was. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, Luke, you uh, didn't have this on your most anticipated movies list. Uh, but I knew that you were interested in seeing it. Uh, so from someone who had literally just seen Barbie like less than 24 hours before, uh, what was it? What was your enjoyment of the film? Like, how did you enjoy it? Uh, wh- what was your experience with Oppenheimer? Boring snooze fest, <laughs> fell asleep like three times, don't even bother. Liar. You're a liar. The whole time. It was just, oh, I couldn't wait for it to be over. It was a great movie. It was, you know, it's it was very different from a lot of the other war movies that I've seen. You know, like, there's a lot of comparisons to Dunkirk because they're both from Christopher Nolan. 
And uh, it's very different from Dunkirk, right? You know, Dunkirk, there's a lot of fight scenes and, you know, there's, it's pretty much a war movie the entire time where they're on the battlefront the whole time. And Oppenheimer is very much not that. Um, And I think one of the best parts about Oppenheimer is that, you know, you see one explosion. That's it. There's one bomb that goes off and that's it. You know, there's nothing else. So I think it was so powerful that they could talk about such a heavy topic and invoke so much emotion without really showing much death, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's that, that's a, that's something to think about. If, if I could just chime in real quick on that, it's a World War II movie that has no battles and doesn't show any actual death, which yeah. it's an interesting point. Go ahead, Caleb. I th- I was going to say the same thing. They don't really show people dying. They show the effects of what happens after. Like it shows, um, it shows the effects that Oppenheimer is going through having built the bomb and sort of having this instant regret and instant remorse. Um, But it doesn't show anybody screaming in terror or being incinerated or anything like that. So I definitely, I, I can't help but say I expected that to be on screen, but I'm grateful that it wasn't. Um, So for you, Caleb, for, well, actually let me share my thoughts on, on the, the movie. Um, Not only, not only was this um, the first war movie I've seen in a long time. Uh, honestly, I, I you know I, I never saw Dunkirk. I didn't see um, you know I actually never have even seen Saving Private Ryan. Uh, the wow. last, yeah, um, and I know that's different wars. Please don't <laughs> think that I think that that's the same war. I understand. <laughs> I don't believe you. <laughs> I'm trying to think of the last World War II specific movie that I that I saw, and I think, um, I think it was Schindler's List, uh, which again also is yeah. By the look on your face, it's like what you know, wh- <laughs> <laughs> um, which is also incredibly difficult to watch for so many different, very different reasons, but also uh, in its own respect, a work of art. Um, this was just a very hard movie to watch. And I, and I don't go out and see these types of movies very often because I think like, I, I, I sort of feel like I'm already well in tune with the <laughs> very difficult dark sides of humanity and the heavy subject matter. Uh, so I didn't, I don't go seeking that out to really see in the movies. You know, we, we have a pop culture pop, podcast where we talk a, a lot about, a lot of different things, but, but Marvel and star Wars and superheroes and fun stuff is always really represented. Um, this is, and that's because of what I choose to really watch and don't watch, but this is definitely one that I wanted to watch because of the buzz around it. And I'm a fan of Christopher Nolan. I've really enjoyed all the movies that I've seen of his. Um, so I, I knew that he would be bringing, uh, a, a very interesting take uh, on this subject matter. But with all that being said, it was a, it Luke, the other day you, you said something and I'm going to just steal it. I was mentally exhausted after this movie. Um, it's not a disturbing movie because like we've said, it doesn't show death. It doesn't show destruction. There's literally only one explosion in the whole movie. And I don't even know that we need to do a spoiler warning because everybody, everybody sort of knows what this movie's about, but we'll do it anyway, just in case we haven't spoiled anything for you already. Uh, we are going to be talking full spoilers for the movie. So if you haven't watched it, come back and, and check it out, check out our episode. But uh, yeah, spoilers from this point on um, the, uh, so not only was it a heavy subject matter, but it was also the first time I had ever seen a movie in IMAX. I had never seen an IMAX. So I literally, we sat down <laughs> and, and, and I think we made the right choice. Honestly, I think we made the right choice because the visuals in this movie and the sound in this movie, and it's not the last time I'm going to be mentioning the sound. Uh, you guys already know, 
but yeah. uh, it it made for the perfect scenario to see this movie, whatever that may have been. For me, it was the perfect scenario. I found because I do wear glasses. For those of you who may not know, I do wear glasses, and I found that if I laid my head on the back of the of the theater seat uh, just enough, I didn't have to move my head or my eyes very much because the screen literally took up every inch of my field of view. Like yeah. I, I, unless I turned one way or the other, my head or looked with my, with my actually moved my eyeballs. I could see nothing except for what was on the screen of this movie. And I said previously that I felt like we were sort of immersed in the across the universe movie, like a inside a comic book. This was dialed to like 10 on the same kind of thing. It felt like I was immersed in this movie. And in some ways it was uh, an incredible experience, but in other ways it was a truly shocking and disturbing experience. That being said, I do think that it's an achievement. What, what Christopher Nolan and everybody involved has done with this movie, I think is an achievement and it's probably going to be, uh, you know, up for multiple awards and if that's going to even be a thing with the writers and the actors strike this year, but whatever awards it, it, it wins, it probably deserves. So, yeah. um, Caleb, did you have uh, something you wanted to share? You stole my question. I was going to ask you how you enjoyed watching an IMAX and I will adjust it instead of just throwing it out the window. Would you watch another movie in IMAX again? Not necessarily the same theme, not necessarily Oppenheimer, but would you sit in front of that gigantic screen with like emphatic noises again without a doubt without a doubt yeah um but it would have to be a movie that um i would want to experience like that again uh <clears throat> star wars <clears throat> um, <laughs> any kind of star wars so i know there's going to be a couple star wars movies coming out uh, in the next few years uh so i would definitely like to do the the imax experience was was really cool for me and i don't know that why i've never really seen an imax movie um but this is definitely a good one to do for the first time and i will definitely go back i agree um i also wanted to be publicly known that you are a liar because you mentioned it right <laughs> now you said star wars we watch Infinity War, but you don't want to watch another war movie because it's heavy. There was no blood. There was no death in this movie. You get to see Thanos' head get chopped off. You get to see Black Widow fall off a cliff and her body's just there. Two different movies. Come on. Spoilers, man. Spoilers. We Jeez. warned them about spoilers. I'm just going to spoil everything. <laughs> oh, and at the, end, at the end of all of our lives, I don't want to spoil anything, but we die. That's that's the major spoiler. And Darth Vader <laughs> is Luke Skywalker's father. True. Oh my goodness gracious! How's it doing? Um, <laughs> so, Luke, um, what worked for you about this movie specifically? Three hours of this very dramatic, uh, heavy topic. Um, what worked for you specifically? A lot of different things. I think the acting was great. I think the writing was great. I thought the music was awesome. But I think the biggest thing was the acting. Like the uh, the plot was good enough where if it was just mediocre acting, then it would have been fine. But there were so many different parts that were made more powerful because they were sold so well by actors like um Sicilian Murphy I keep he hearing Cillian Killian I'm just gonna call him Sicilian he's such a good Sic actor Sicilian like he like he like the Sicily the Italy, the Italian city sure yeah Cillian I, um I think it's either Cillian or Killian I don't know we're gonna go with Cillian I, for our purposes Murph Dog. Murph, Murph Dog, Dog <laughs> just sells it so well. And there's so many different parts of the movie where there's it's just quiet, right? And it's just you see him and you see the expression that he's making and it makes it so much more powerful. Before I give you my thoughts, I think actors and their accents are mind-boggling. 
because my first introduction to uh, Mr. Murphy, not to be confused with Eddie. Um, Murph Dog you're talking about? Yeah, Murph Dog. Um, was in Peaky Blinders, where he's an Englishman with a very unique and thick accent. And then I heard his line where it's now I become death. And I was like, is that him or is someone else saying that? And then they showed his face. I was like, oh, man, he's doing a different accent. And then I heard his voice, his real voice, or what we can presume is his real voice, in an interview. And it was completely different. And it always just, it breaks my brain every single time. And it's just so much talent in just being able to do an impression of a different accent. Have you seen the um, Hot Ones episode with Matt Damon? With Matt Damon? No. Yeah. Watch it because he talks because he was in a movie where he played a South African man. Uh, it was a, a movie about Nelson Mandela. Um, mm. Excellent movie. I, the name of it is avoiding me. I can't remember. But he had to learn how to do a South African accent. And he was just talking in his normal voice. And then like without skipping a beat, he just goes right into his South African accent. And wow. it, it was startling. Like the, I, I agree with you. Actors that are able to pull off different accents are incredible uh and if we can just add emily blunt to that you know i don't know that i've ever seen a movie with emily blunt where she doesn't have um oh well i i guess uh, a quiet place she doesn't have an, a british accent does she uh, but in this movie she was utterly convincing of yeah. being who she was in in this movie um yeah in- incredible uh so yeah accents worked for you what else worked for you caleb i think behind the scenes worked a lot for me i think i don't know if it's just because the government listens to me because i'm obviously so important that they were showing (laughs) me more on my um twitter slash not twitter slash social media feeds or as you like to say dad the interwebs it was just a bunch of behind the scenes things for oppenheimer where i learned that um murph dog ate an almond a day to Mm. drop the weight and to get into the body shape that they wanted him to have to play uh, Oppenheimer. But I also learned that was an almond a day. Yeah. For how long? I have no idea, but I guess the film was like, it it was the, the movie was shot in like 45 days or something like that. They need to launch an investigation on Christopher Nolan because you look (laughs) at the actors he's worked with like Christian Bale, crazy weight loss. Killian yeah. Cillian Murphy, crazy weight loss. This dude has some body image problems. <laughs> <laughs> um, in addition, uh, Murph Dog learned 30,000 different words so that he could speak, what was it, Dutch? Dutch, yeah. Or three, four lines of dialogue in the movie. And he learned it in a weekend. And, like, this is, what is it? This is Murph Dog's like sixth movie with Christopher Nolan, and every single time it seems like he's an insanely powerful or impactful actor on screen. And it just that works for me. Like <laughs> I don't know how else to say it. I don't normally geek out for this type of thing, but I don't know if it's um, Mr. Murph or just my appreciation for dedication to your craft, but it was really really awesome. And he wasn't the only one who was that dedicated to their craft. Like. Everybody who was on screen for even a half a second was adding their own version, their own form of that same level of dedication to just be able to perform and get it to the level that they wanted to get it to. Um, since we're since we're sort of talking about um, Killian Cillian Murph 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 Dog Murphy, I want to talk a little bit about that too. But if you haven't gone out and looked at some interviews that Robert Downey Jr. has done about this movie. Like you can't find one where he isn't just singing the praises of Cillian Murphy. And he brought up the whole almond a day thing. He talked about them asking him if he wanted to go out and hang out for the weekend when they had a break in their schedule of filming. And that's when he said, no, I have to learn 30,000 words of the Dutch language. Uh, and he's like, what, you have to learn 30,000. He's like, yeah. And then by the time they came back from that weekend, he had learned them. So yeah, if you want to hear some more great uh, Cillian Murphy stories, just look up some uh, RDJ Oppenheimer interviews because he's just out there literally singing his praises. Yeah, well, 
Margot Robbie did a four and a half minute plank for Barbies. So <laughs> it was a minute longer than uh, uh, Gosling. So I think she. What did she beat? Like the entire cast or something in a plank competition? The yep. entire cast and crew. I think if I tried to do a four-minute plank, it would take me three years to do four minutes. <laughs> <laughs> if, you, if you're if you going to take four years, uh, it'll take me eight or more. <laughs> um, I also found the pronunciation of his name. It's an Irish name, and it's pronounced Killian. But go ahead, Luke. I thought he's from New York. <laughs> oh, you're right. You're right. Is he? Is he really from New York? No. Oh. I think um, he's making Oppenheimer joke. Oppenheimer is. Oh, gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Um, well, one of the things that worked for me in this movie, besides like the cast, I would love to start, I would love to talk a little bit about the cast because it seemed like every, I'm going to start this, I'm going to put a pin in it, but I'm just going to, I, I got to finish my thought on this one. It seemed like every time there's a new scene, there was some new like, established and terrific actor so i guess that goes to show like how many people want to work with uh with christopher nolan because they made this movie for a hundred million dollars the budget was a hundred million dollars and they had like they could have made seven flashes (laughs) (laughs) you're talking about box office gross for the flash not the budget because the budget on that movie was ridiculous um but like you could have had a billion dollars just in salary alone in with the stars that were in this movie. Uh, but anyways, that, that's a whole other point. What I wanted to say was the sound, the, the sound for the way that they used sound in this movie was unlike any other movie I've ever seen in my life. And it was for me more impactful and more powerful than the visuals than anything else. And it, <laughs> It was so disturbing. I'll just, I'll just, you know, I'm just going to tell you all the times that the the sound scared me. It, even from the beginning, when we're meeting Oppenheimer as like a student in Cambridge, I think it was in the in the beginning, he's sort of having these not visions, but they're showing you sort of what he's thinking with like all these different images, stars spinning around things particles atoms crashing into each other and they do this thing with like this rumbling noise but at the same time there's like a a score going on at the same time where there's um violin and other stringed instruments and from the outset for me it was just so unnerving but not in a bad way not in a way where i wasn't enjoying things it just set the tone for prepare yourself for three hours of being uneasy because that's what we're going to do here. Um, then the score, the way that they use the score just sort of continued throughout the whole time. The score was very intense because the movie's intense. J Robert Oppenheimer is a very intense individual. Everything, every, every scene we see him in, he is, it was almost like unnerving to see him smile or be happy because that it just didn't happen very much. Um, but I'll tell you what got me and I've never had a movie do this to me in my entire life. And I don't know if it was because it was in IMAX with the sound that came with it, or it was just the movie. But when the, the test, uh, explosion, when we finally get to that, we're we're building so much, so much, so much towards that for so long, they're building so much tension so effectively. Um, and then the bomb goes off. And there's no sound. And you hear Oppenheimer breathing. He's sort of taught. You hear some dialogue and it's Oppenheimer like sort of whispering to himself. And you're seeing all of these images, the light, the fire, the mushroom cloud, the light against people's faces. And they all have their glasses on or their little plank, you know, little plaque thing that they have to look through but there's no sound. It went on for so long that I, I was having a conversation with myself. Like I'm not even, I did. I literally was thinking to myself, self, this is what they're doing. Like, okay, this is a decision that they made. They built towards this massive explosion 
but they're going to give us the silence and just the visuals. Okay. And as soon as I said to myself, okay, the sound came. And Luke, I don't know if I startled you because I was sitting next to you, but <laughs> I jumped so like not high because I didn't jump out of my seat. I jumped into my seat. Like it felt, it felt like, it felt like the sound pushed me back. And it, you were was, getting hit with the aftershock. I was so scared. I was so scared. And then I survived it. And then because they're we're following about three or four different sites of different characters experiencing this explosion, we switch to another site and then they give us another blast. And then they switch to another site and they give us another blast. <laughs> and I wasn't ready for any of them. And I have to tell you that it was one of the most awe-inspiring terrifying, unnerving, and satisfying moments I've ever had in a movie theater. So that's all All that to say that the sound deserves an award itself. And I know they do awards for sound. Th- that in and of itself is, is an achievement that I've never seen before or, or experienced in a movie theater. I am also fairly certain that Christopher Nolan listens to our podcast because he made oh. this movie to checkmate us he got tired of us complaining about cgi so he just (laughs) used none of it he said what are you going to complain about now huh and then (laughs) threw a bomb at us um but yeah i was gonna that's what i was gonna say when you started talking about the impact of sound and just the like ominous music in the background letting us know like something's gonna happen just building toward it i was gonna say that lack of sound was almost as impressive and i don't think i could say it better than you did Mm -hmm. but I don't even think the bomb was the biggest explosion in the the film. I think, to me, that was like the middle point. Because then you get into the full-on war that uh, Robert Downey Jr. and Killian Murphy's characters get into, trying to just completely do, like diminish the impact that Oppenheimer had. And it's sort of like a an ego contest between the two of them for a while. And yeah the explosion that that leads to in their argument and into uh, Killian Murphy's reaction, all that stuff. It is amazing. It is so crazy and well done in my opinion. And talking about it makes me want to watch it again, but I'm going to stand. I'm not going to refute myself. I'm not going to stop myself from (laughs) watching the movie again, but it, it was just so enjoyable the first time in my opinion that I don't think I need to watch it again, but I can say that it was very, very good in my opinion. I I would – that's a very – I don't know if I would – Luke, would you watch this movie again? I wouldn't go out of my way to see it, but I would enjoy it if I saw it again. See, that's sort of why I'm at. I would. I don't know that I need to experience it in a, in a theater, um, but, but I, I think the performances – I think I would like to watch parts of this movie again. That's that's sort of. Can I tell you that I would not watch the speech after the bomb went off? I would not watch that scene again, ever. I that. Go ahead. I can see what you mean. That was um, unsettling, to to put it one way. Um, and yeah, and I don't mean that as a as any as a a markdown on the on the uh, the movie. I just think that the scene was too effective. Like, um, I yeah. can't remember. I can't remember who I was talking to, but um, I I said, they asked me, oh, did you like the movie? And I said, no, <laughs> but it's not because I, I, I did like the movie. So don't misunderstand me. But what I mean by that is I didn't like some parts of it because it was too good. It, it was too effective at what it was trying to do. Because, and that, that's what this entire subject means. Like, so I remember growing up in the eighties and even though the eighties was, was the decade that sort of led up to, um, the end of the cold war, which was the very early nineties, um, just the turn of the decade, really. Um, 
I I can tell you that I remember living in the world where there was real fear between in the nuclear arms race, you know, in the Cold War. Uh, I remember when the Chernobyl disaster happened, the fear that that uh, instilled in many people because the news really didn't know what would either they didn't know what was happening and, and they were reporting facts without context or they, or my young ears just didn't understand what was happening. I literally thought that the Chernobyl disaster was actually Russia attacking the United States with nuclear weapons. There was a, a few moments in my life where I thought that was really happening. So seeing that, seeing this movie through those glasses, we're literally witnessing a world that is a pre-nuclear world but we live in a post-nuclear world. Yeah. And I thought that the movie was just so effective at portraying the before and after of those fa- of that fact that um that's what I mean by it it was too good. It was not yeah. it was so unnerving for me. I think that's uh, what- another reason I don't necessarily jump at the the opportunity to watch it again. And again, I just bring it to the final scene where it's talking about like he's changed the world forever and it's always an option. And even though we live in, depending on who you ask and depending on the time of day, we live in a sort of peaceful time. There's not actively a tension or a draft being talked about or anything like that. It's still an option. And it's because of things that happened in real life that were portrayed in this movie. Yeah, it, it's a it's a historically significant film about a historically significant time. Um, did either one of you guys, and I'll start with Luke here, because I, I, the answer to this question for me is yes. Did either one of you find the way that it was set up sort of uh, like the backdrop of these these testimonies and these hearings one in this small office with Oppenheimer and the other in front of a panel, like a review panel in the, of the U S government with um, Strauss, Robert Downey Jr. We're literally learning about the story through these two testimonies. Yeah. Did, e- did either one of you, Luke, let's go with you first. Did, did you find that to be uh, a little hard to follow at all? Or, um, or what were your thoughts basically on, on the way that the story was presented to us through this way? No, to me, it wasn't confusing at all. I thought it was relatively easy to follow, honestly. I thought that it was, um, first of all, visually, it was very easy to follow because it was black and white versus in color. So I just made that distinction as is. But then, you know, I saw that, okay, well, this person looks significantly older and Oppenheimer is like balding now. And I think that sort of, helped me follow along a little bit easier. But I think the biggest thing in regards to that that made a difference to me was that it um, it took you along what was going on in, the, in one storyline connected to the other storyline, right? Like at the beginning of the Robert Downey Jr. hearings storyline, it didn't show what he was on trial for, right? You didn't know what he was doing was wrong or that he was accused of doing something wrong. You didn't know that he was being accused of being a communist. Um, So as the story, as one story progressed, so did the other. So I think about halfway through is when I was completely understanding of what was going on. I can see where the confusion could have happened for some people. I followed it pretty well, but it was also because of uh, Nolan's history. He's made both Inception and Tenet. I can't remember if he did Memento or not, but I vaguely remember he did. Okay, so because of all of those, I sort of expected this sort of higher intellectual, make you think the whole time build of the story. So because of that, I just sort of prepared myself for it. And even though it wasn't just a constant time frame, it wasn't just progressing time forward, um, I sort of started to put it together. And then about maybe halfway through, 
it was all solidified. I was like, okay, they're referencing this, they're referencing that without any sort of extra thought being taken or any extra attention being taken away what's in front of us at that moment. You both mentioned halfway through, um, and I I was confused. I'll be honest with you. I was confused, and it's because of all the reasons you guys are saying that it is a, a thinking movie. It's one that you have to really pay attention, but I found myself trying to, I was playing catch up like most of the time, like trying to understand the scene that we had just seen as the next scene was, was, um, was going. And this movie moved, man. Oh my gosh. It was, it it was for three hours. It was fast. Yeah. For three hours, it was fast. And for three hours of the density of what we were watching, it did not feel like it was slow at any point in my opinion. I agree with you. So let me ask you, you guys have both referenced halfway point. Are you putting the halfway point before or after the uh, test explosion? I would say before. I think they stopped using black and white for a minute. And that's where I uh, would say that the time just sort of intertwined. And that's where I would call it halfway. Got you. Um, Okay. So I, I, for me, I don't feel like I, because Luke, you also said before the explosion as well. Uh, For me, the... I felt comfortable and like that. Oh, I get, I get what we're talking about after, after the explosion. And once I think, honestly, I think it was when Rami Malik started to, um, uh, testify that I started to understand like, Oh, because I'll be honest, there were so many different fragmented types of jumping here, jumping there, new name, new person, now we're just going to leave that here and move forward. Like the, I was sort of confused by the meeting that Oppenheimer had with that um, that one general. Uh, yeah, where it turned general. out he was bugged. Yeah, and it was the three of them in that one office, and yeah. and it was sort of being cut between a conversation with Oppenheimer and Matt Damon's character, and then they but they were talking about the conversation that Oppenheimer was having with these two other military men. I yeah. that was like, oh my gosh, I think I'm going to come off the rails here. I don't know, if, <laughs> I don't know what's happening here. But again, like I usually do when I get confused, I'll just sort of like keep riding the roller coaster, and then I was able to circle back around and start to understand when they started putting it together. So. So two questions for you. One, by the end of the movie, did you have any like holes in it or had it all pieced itself together? No, I think by the end, he did a great job. Nolan, I mean, did a great job of of answering any questions and addressing any confusion that I may have had. Hmm. Um, so no, I didn't feel like I was, I don't feel like I had any holes gotcha. um, by the end. I'm glad. Second, my opinion is that scene was supposed to confuse you. I think it was supposed to be a little bit more complicated than meets the eye. Do you feel like you were thinking about that scene too long into the next scene? Or did you just sort of say, okay, let's put a pin in that and expect it to be revisited? Yeah. When I start to get uh, confused, anytime I watch a movie of this type of story, especially Christopher Nolan, if I'm honest, like inception, I think is my favorite Christopher Nolan movie. Mm -hmm. And that movie is incredibly confusing. When I, when I get confused, I just move on. Like I just, (laughs) I'm like, I I trust that the movie or the storyteller or the movie maker is going to, is going to address that confusion. And if they don't, I don't get hung up on it too bad. Um, because I, I, I feel like I'm more of a big idea person rather than the, in the weeds detailed. So I'll still understand the big ideas that they're trying to get through to me. Even if I miss out on the smaller uh, nuances of it. Gotcha. And a question for the both of you real quick. Did you know that? Yes. The TV show, the office was represented in this movie. There's so many yep. people. There's so many people in this movie. Luke, do you do you have something for me? I think it's a reference to Dwight building the potato gun. <laughs> that he was given piece by piece. I think that's what he's referencing. No. <laughs> that would have been a funny joke, but no. Uh, you remember Rolf, the dude with like the sort of thick glasses? Not the thick in terms of like the lens, but the black frame. He was a friend of Dwight's and always yeah. made people in the office uneasy. Yeah. Dad, do you remember him? Yes, I do. 
he played a small part in this. He was like one of the people with like a very thick, I want to say German or Russian accents. He was in it. And then I was like, oh, hey, where do I know him? So then I looked it up and it was him. And I just thought it was so funny. Everybody wanted to be in this movie, man. Well, I'm glad you brought that point up because that's a a perfect and natural segue to what I wanted to talk about, which was the cast. Like, I I could not believe every time, like I already referenced it, every time there's a new scene, it seemed like we're getting some other very recognizable actor. And honestly, I thought your connection to The Office you meant was Emily Blunt because she's married to uh, (laughs) John Krasinski, who is, uh, you know, what's his face? Uh, Jim from uh, from The Office. But uh yeah i mean florence Pugh, robert downey jr emily blunt rami malik um can i also just say that i did i was comforted a little bit uh, during the lead up to the big explosion uh the big bomb test because um jo- josh from drake and josh was able to yeah. be the one like to sort of start the countdown i felt josh i felt like a calming presence from josh <laughs> i trust him with that responsibility you knew that everything was going to be okay because Josh was putting the keys in and turning them, right, Luke? Exactly. Gary Oldman? Yeah, that's what I was going to say. That was one of the most chilling scenes, I thought, for the movie. because And the dialogue, I mean, even though it lasted maybe just a minute, like yeah. Gary Oldman came in. He was recognizable, but at the same time, not recognizable as Harry Truman. Is it Tr- Truman? Yeah, he was Harry Truman. Yeah. And the, oh man, he, if I went and I found the screenplay for this movie and counted his words, he probably said like a, less than a hundred words yeah. in this movie. I would like to know how many words there were spoken in this movie, to be honest, because it's probably <laughs> so many words. Yeah. And he had a small, tiny little fraction of them but some of the most haunting because in the ones for me was um when oppenheimer said sir i feel like i have blood on my hands mm-hmm. and just look with this cold this cold stare just pulls out his handkerchief and hands it to him and he said something to the effect of hiroshima is not about you right is hiroshima is not about you he said you built it but I dropped it. And the way that he said it was not comforting. It was more like, don't you dare go out this, go out there and make this about you and steal yeah. my thunder. And exactly. I was so terrified. Yeah. And then as he's leaving the Oval Office, he pretty much, he, I don't think pretty much, I think he literally calls him a crybaby. Yeah. He says, don't let that crybaby back in here or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> That's crazy. Well, and then um, if, if you want to go into more chilling dialogue, we can go into the whole uh, Strauss storyline with with Robert Downey Jr. Because that guy, as the movie went on, that guy became unhinged. Yeah. Like unhinged. And one of the things that he said, uh, you know, um, was to the effect of uh, power always stays in the shadows. Yeah. And I don't know <laughs> – you know, I'm not into the conspiracy theories and all this stuff, but it just, and I don't know how historically accurate that point of view is from the movie, or if that's just Christopher Nolan being Christopher Nolan and, and, you know, sprinkling in very chilling details to the movie. But the fact that the idea is out there or the idea is introduced into this, from this movie, that what you see in front of you is not what you, is not what's really happening. But what you see is as a result of what you don't see making those things happen uh, is is chilling. Yeah, absolutely. It makes you think. I think that's also another reason why I like this movie as much. I think I just like Christopher Nolan in general because it makes you think the whole time. And even though I would still call this an action movie, even though there wasn't necessarily like fisticuffs fighting scene sort of thing it's very dialogue heavy and that's sort of the fighting and action that you get out of this movie and it's just it just draws you in and it he knows exactly what strings to pull he knows exactly when to pull them and it's it's very impressive 
he's um he's too he's too good of a storyteller i think uh and can i tell you a couple things this is just completely off the wall here um but i did have a a question before we start winding things down uh two things about that i've seen online and you know i don't really give credence to much of the rumor stuff you see on twitter the twitter aka the x um (laughs) whatever whatever we're going to be calling twitter now i don't know um but there was a couple weeks ago, Christopher Nolan was doing some interviews and he said that he's done making superhero movies. So he did his Dark Knight trilogy and he has no interest in making any other kind of superhero movies. But when asked about Star Wars, he would not rule it out. Ah. So on the on the heels of making a statement about I will not make any more superhero movies, he was not as definitive about Star Wars. So all that does is set my imagination on fire and wonder would could we ever get a star wars movie made by this man and if we do um that is something i would really really want to see uh the right. other thing that is out there in the zeitgeist right now is that apparently uh the rumor is that killian murphy was asked or is being considered for the role of dr doom in the fantastic four movie and when when he was asked if he if when he was asked about that all if he would be opposed to playing that he was he said it's always about the script so if the script is good you never know so that's a very yeah especially dr doom i would love to see that guy play play dr doom um so but before we get to uh to um to the end of our conversation here uh were there anything that we we haven't we've talked about a lot of different things about the movie, but was there anything that happened in the movie that w- that sort of stuck out to you as a highlight, something that you that you'd like the chance to talk about, some a, a specific scene or dialogue or character or anything like that? Uh, Luke, how about you? Was there anything uh, that we haven't touched on yet? The scene where he's giving a speech in that gymnasium. Yeah. That was. Because you heard like the the banging of the feet throughout the movie, and yep. it like got progressively louder when he would just like zone out, right? Um, but when it finally hit, it was very powerful, and I think that was my favorite scene. What uh, was you mentioned the 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 feet banging, and I agree with you because that was so disturbing to me. Just the sound of it, it was sort of overwhelming, um, and to me, it sort of seemed like. You know, they didn't show us the two bombs dropping, and I'm sort of grateful for that because I don't think they needed to do that. I don't know that the movie was about that. Uh, but to me, that was their moment of showing us the fallout of those two nuclear uh, nuclear weapons that were dropped. And I think that it was a very creative, very disturbing uh, decision to show us that way because, I mean – you know, nuclear explosions, that kind of stuff. I, I sort of always default back to Terminator Two. Terminator Two shows a, a nuclear bomb <laughs> hitting Los Angeles, and um, Sarah Connor is banging on this fence trying to get to some children. It's a vision, right? It's not a. It's a, yeah. it's a reality, but then you, know, you see, yeah, you see these, um, you know, the blast come through, and like it just blasts all of her skin off, and it, she just becomes a skeleton. But this movie in the in that scene was showing like these just super bright lights and these you know disfigured people and faces. Um, again, very effective, but so so disturbing. Not one, not something that I would want to see again. But again, the use of sound is so scary. Uh, was there anything else, Luke, besides that scene? Or, or... no, that's it. That's all I want to talk about. Cool. Caleb, uh, any other things that, that jumped out at you as far as scenes or dialogue or actors or anything like that? I think I could talk about this for another nine days. Um, but I think most underrated character, even though his impact to the story was apparently very significant, was uh, Rami Malik's character, where they said he was an absolute lock. This isn't a trial. This is just... This is just something you have to get through. You're going to get voted in, yada, yada, yada. And all of a sudden, it goes the opposite way. And then that leads to um, Han, young Han Solo talking to <laughs> Iron Man and going and saying, uh, like, pretty much that you're not that important. Like, you had thought this was just uh, 
in the bag for you. You thought everybody was in your pocket, this, that, and the other. And then he opens the door for him and literally just throws him to the wolves. He has to put a good face on him because there's all these cameras in his face. And then they dunk on Iron Man one more time by saying maybe the conversation that Oppenheimer and Einstein had was about something a lot more important than you. And they show that scene. And that scene where the hat flies off of Einstein's head because of the wind and the conversation that follows is about like a Nobel Prize and it being the equivalent of passing the baton to the next generation and it pretty much just being the the closing of the book on your chapter of your experience and your impact on science or however you want to chalk that up to. I thought it was so perfectly timed and I can see a million different arguments made saying that that scene should have been earlier in the movie so we can expect something to happen. But I'm so glad that it wasn't. I thought it was so much more powerful having that be, no pun intended, no joke trying to be made by saying this, but the final nail in the coffin of that movie, that it was, I think that right there, that sequence of events was my favorite part because of the impact, because of the power, because of the message that it sends and the impact that it had on the movie just in its conclusion, it felt so perfectly done. And it felt like the entire movie was meant to lead to that scene and then for nothing else to follow. And that's exactly what happened. So like I said, I could talk about it forever, but that all of those sequence of events, it just seemed so powerful. Um, I, I was sort of like keeping that whole sequence in my back pocket, just, you know, just, to save to the end because it was like the end of the movie. And the question that I was asking myself through the whole thing was like, how will this movie end? How can you end this movie? Um, And the real, I feel like I I don't even know where to start with this because this, the, the interaction in the scene you're talking about with Oppenheimer and, and Einstein and Strauss walking towards him, or Strauss, sorry. He was very clear that he wanted it pronounced Strauss, right? So as Strauss walking towards him, they showed that in the trailer with uh, uh, with Einstein losing his hat. But the first time you see it's from Strauss's perspective, which was black and white. Yeah. And I thought to myself, oh, are you are you pulling a, an Infinity War on us? Are you like showing us things in the trailer that's not really in the movie? Because yeah. it looked different in the trailer. But I feel like that interaction that conversation or that exchange is the entire like skeleton of this movie. The, this, that's the, the foundation of it without, without the ideas expressed in that, in, in that sequence, in every perspective of those sequence. Cause we see it from like three different perspectives. We see it from Strauss perspective, Oppenheimer's perspective and, and Einstein's perspective which I think is another brilliant thing that Christopher Nolan does is use these different perspectives throughout the whole movie. But I believe like that's the foundation that this whole movie sits on and his execution and his like holding back of the dialogue and the conversation between the two people was masterful. And it was the perfect way to end this movie because through the movie, you're jumping around between literally from the 30s to the maybe the 60s, definitely the 50s. Um, so you don't have it's not a linear story. It's not he's not telling you a linear story. <laughs> this is an idea story. And you're going from idea to idea to idea. And that last final idea that was introduced effectively in the beginning of the movie through other means, which was. Will the chain reaction of this bomb set the atmosphere on fire and will it never stop and have we just destroyed the world? Yeah. The fact that coupled with Oppenheimer going to Einstein with that calculation earlier in the movie gives you the context for that conversation. I literally don't know how people can construct these types of stories. It is so complex and you have to be so organized I really have a ton of respect for people that can accomplish it. And Christopher Nolan is at the top of that list right there because of this scene. And then the way for them to end it, which was what, what's the line, I believe um, when they said, when I came to you and, and asked, are we going to destroy the world? 
that clearly was before the test. And then mm-hmm. now fast forward to this conversation and the bomb has been dropped and it didn't destroy the world the way that they were afraid of. Yet Oppenheimer's answer to Einstein was, I believe that we have. And yeah. then, then they show, you know, fast forward to the potential future of these things being weaponized and just flying into the atmosphere and coming down all over the world. Um, w- and, and boom, then the movie's over. It's yeah. like, I I walked out so glad I was with you guys because when we walked out of the theater, I was able to, you know, you guys made the, the mood a little bit lighter because if it weren't for you guys doing that, like I probably would have found a dark corner just to sit in and start contemplating um, realities because to end on that, like it just, it just highlights the absolute terror that exists on our planet. That is a real, real thing. And that's not usually what people go to see the movies for, but they did that with this movie and it's an important truth and it's a terrifying truth. And it's just, um, it's just, it's, it's a brave and courageous thing to do for a movie maker to say, Oh, I'm going to make this movie. And this is what, these are the things I want to say about it. And it's, uh, it's, it's pretty remarkable. So, um, yeah, the way that they ended it was, was just, uh, as much as you can do a chef kiss about this kind of topic, <laughs> it's a chef's kiss. Yeah. The fact that they emphasized numerous times throughout the film and probably in the real lead up to the test that the chances of just incinerating the atmosphere were near zero and not absolute zero was yeah. insane. And then the fact that, they had a side bet on it right before the testing. Whether that was dramatized or not, I thought was insane to, to, to even conceptualize that. Like imagine people building this and all of the millions of people on the planet not even knowing this testing site exists, not even knowing that it's yeah. a possibility. And then all of a sudden their life could be done because of a 30-second bomb testing. That would be awful. It's just it's just terror, terrifying, um, yeah. and that was one of the most effective parts of the trailer. I felt was that interchange between Matt Damon and um, Killian Murphy, which was the whole. Are you telling me there's a chance that we could destroy the world? And he's like near zero, and he's like, yeah. "What would, would you like?" And then he's like, uh, zero. I yeah. thought it was like, and and to me that was like one of the linchpin scenes of the trailer, and it was seemed like it was almost like an afterthought in the movie. Uh, and but it gives me an opportunity to to talk a little bit about Matt Damon because I thought I thought he, he, he and his character was magnificent in this movie 100%. and makes I'm a big fan of Matt Damon anyway and I, you know he he really did a great job in this in this movie um, and it was because of that and it was all because of that side bit I figured that that would have been earlier in the process yeah no it was literally at the time where they were about to start the uh, the countdown. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, just such a well-crafted movie. Yeah, it's very enjoyable. Not sure I'm going to see it anytime soon again, but a very important movie. So, all right. Well, Luke, we know that you've pretty much gotten to all your points, right? But uh, Caleb, was there any final thoughts that you uh, wanted to share before we close this thing out? I just had one last question that will lead to my last thought. I don't ever care enough. I don't follow it enough. Um, so I don't know it enough. What are the parameters for someone to be nominated or to be able to be able to be nominated as a supporting actor or actress? Is this um, to be someone in the movie? I'm not sure that I, I, I could spell out any, any like actual parameters, mm-hmm. but as far as a, you're talking about supporting actor or actress. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. That, that would be, somebody that's not in one of the main roles. Yeah. Uh, so, so like so many in this movie that I wonder how many are allowed to be nominated or who will actually be nominated. The one that I keep seeing is Robert Downey Jr.'s character and his portrayal of the character. So uh, it doesn't matter. We don't have a rubric in front of us, so it's not. I, I, I mean, I think he would be because Oppenheimer would be the main character, like yeah. the main I think he would fall under a supporting actor. Uh, think also of Emily Blunt in this movie. Yeah. Her her scene, her her scene where she's testifying, 
that oh, was man. next level. Isn't it, it, I thought to myself, listen, these two, Barbie and Oppenheimer, the two movies alone, the Barbenheimer phenomenon, have <laughs> me actually interested in the Academy Awards, which I'm typically not interested in. And it's because of America Ferreira. Uh, in um, in Barbie, as because of Emily Blunt and Oppenheimer, because yeah. and and it's because of literally just two scenes: That's America's crazy. monologue and and Emily Blunt's um, test testimony. Yeah, and it just goes to show you how powerful one scene can be in a uh, larger movie. So, um, yeah. yeah, give give them the awards. The question them was, them. yeah, <laughs> rename the awards. Give it to them. Um, the question has been more or less answered. The extent of supporting actor nominations, I want to know is like, I for sure think Robert Downey Jr. will get it. I want to know if guys like Matt Damon will get it or guys like, um, what's his name? He was like Polka Dot Man in, um. Oh, yeah. There you go. Yeah. I don't remember his name. Uh, his name is, um, I'm going to butcher his last name, so I apologize in advance, but his name is David Dastmolshayar. Oh, okay. I watched a movie, and he was in it. And uh, Hugh Jackman is the main character, and it's about Hugh Jackman's daughter being abducted. And oh. I, it's super intense and like very. Um, oh, is he like ex- sort of like a sweaty psycho in it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, I think I've uh, what you're talking about. Yeah, and he kid like that actor and his character kidnaps kids and it's very disturbing and every time i see him in a role i always think of that <laughs> That's he, he's a, he, he could like have the corner on creepy like villains for the rest of his career if he wanted to because yeah. he's just got that vibe but as far as the academy award like um perspective on this I don't know a ton about it, but what I do know is that when a movie like this has so many fine performances, one of two things happen. Uh, one of them outshines the rest, and then that that's the only one that gets an, an, a nomination. Um, then the other, then the other thing that happens is that too many of them shine, and none of them get a nomination because they. They sort of the, – the nominating people just are like, well, I can't nominate so-and-so because so-and-so deserves it. Yeah. So then it's the opposite effect. The, th- the third thing – and I know I said two things, but it just occurred to me there's a third thing. <laughs> Sometimes uh, two actors from the same movie get nominated mm. and they split the vote and somebody else wins. Oh, man. Yeah. So – I don't know. I think it's five or six different people get act, get nominated for these types of awards. Yeah. Um, so then, you know, if you have two people from one movie, you know, they they get the, it waters down the entire category. So then the person that was just enough more ends up getting the award, but it usually ends up being from another movie. But that is my really uneducated way of, <laughs> you know, looking at Oscar chances for this movie. But I would be super surprised if if we didn't hear oppenheimer's name mentioned a lot when the nominations come out again if they do come out because who knows how long the strike is going to happen and if there's no people showing up to the award ceremony they're not going to have an award ceremony yeah Uh, so we'll see all right well All all that to ask you had already touched on a little bit um not to ask but to comment you'd already mentioned america and emily blunt having two sides of the same option, right? I think it's crazy how different Barbie and Oppenheimer are and how different and different their impact are for Strauss and Ken and them Mm. being at each other, like pinned against each other for one award. I think that's so crazy. Um, So they could potentially be in different categories as far as I understand because I don't know that Robert Downey Jr., his role would be considered the uh, like a lead role, so he would probably be up for supporting actor. Where mm-hmm. Ken would be a lead role, so he could be up for best actor. I see. So they wouldn't necessarily go head to head. But again, I don't know if there's a chance that they, the two of them could go. But yeah, could you imagine those two being up for the same award <laughs> yeah. for these two the two roles? This is incredible. 
another observation about Barbenheimer is that one is about an existential crisis, and the other one gave me an existential crisis. <laughs> All right. Well, I think that's going to do it. We appreciate you guys listening to our discussion about um, about Oppenheimer. And we thank you for joining us, as always, and listening to the Colby cast. This is Colby for Caleb and Luke reminding you to just give peace a chance. You can find the Colby cast on Twitter and Instagram at the Colby cast. If you're wordy, like me, you can send an email to thecolbycast at gmail.com. Please subscribe to the show and leave a review on your favorite podcast app or wherever you listen to podcasts. This podcast is not endorsed by anyone or anything for that matter. It is intended for entertainment and informational purposes only. All original content of this podcast is the intellectual property of the Colby cast, unless otherwise indicated. That'll do, donkey. That'll do.